Okay, pasa, move, fasa, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. Just got done with Wonderland Conference in Miami. I've got an article about it coming out tomorrow. But today, I've got the one and only Mudu Baki, mixed martial artist extraordinaire, traditional African cultural researcher, and steward of the mushroom. These addiction issues and such and depression cycles weren't as prevalent in these traditional sides because they were inoculated early on with having these divine experiences and understand they were connected to a greater whole. I first connected with Mudu at the Telluride Mushroom Festival a few years ago, and then we had a chance to kick it in England during breaking convention. And in many ways, this dialogue today is a continuation of the lecture that I saw him give in England at the University of Exeter. Mudu is one of the OGs in this space, got serious weight behind his name, and it's an honor to host him here on the podcast today. This podcast is brought to you by MicroBoost. Functional mushroom supplements. We've got the MicroBoost mushroom coffee. We've got the soft gel capsules. And we've got the MicroBoost merch. All accessible to you at microboost.com. That's M Y C R O B O O S T.com. Alrighty then, everybody. Thanks for riding with us. Please consider rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you're listening. And without further ado, let's get down to business. Hey, Pasa Mufasa. What up, though? We got the one and only Mudu Baki of Detroit in the house right now. I'm a huge fan of Mudu. Met him in Telluride, Colorado at the Telluride Mushroom Festival a few years ago. We kicked it at Breaking Convention. I've been following your work the long way. How are you doing today, Mudu? I'm well. I'm well. Happy to be here. You know, enjoying the day. Yeah. Beautiful. So let's get up to speed on what you're working on right now in Detroit. You've got so many different irons in the fire. I know you had a big psychedelic conference over the summer. You've been working in various modalities with martial arts. You've been running various educational workshops. What are you working on these days? Oh, man, quite a bit. You know, I'm still involved in the, I guess, legislative part of it, you know, helping to uh, organize the statewide effort here in Michigan um, and then working on a national campaign. So uh, trying to organize cities around, you know, to help, you know, get some some equitable access models uh, in place. Uh, beyond that, teaching, you know, I'm working with a, a really great friend of mine, uh, Julie Barron, and we're teaching uh, psychedelic uh, therapy. Um, but, you know, of course, from a definitely more grounded approach, but it's it's doing that um, and just like you say, doing workshops and just trying to uh, work abroad, you know, beyond just, you know, uh, psychedelics, just to, you know, organize for the betterment, you know, uh, and enjoying it at the same time. So trying to achieve a win-win here. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, you're deeply embedded in a robust community there in Detroit that has a lot of very, very important and essential contributors to the broader psychedelic and social justice ecosystem. Of course, you were a student of the inimitable Kalindi Iyi and I, like many other people, have been fascinated by Kalindi's work, his way of communicating, his message. Of course, we have mutual friends, Darren LeBaron. Shout out Darren LeBaron and many other people doing incredible work. So I'd be curious, what got you dialed into this community in the first place, working with Kalindi and Darren and everyone? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess for me, it's always been a, a pursuit of just my orientation, you know, coming up. I was on. Uh, you know, uh, given, given a great foundation from my parents, but, you know, at a certain point, you know, making decisions like we all do, uh, 
explored the wild side, but then uh, stick, returning back to my roots and started to uh, really organize my community for the betterment. Uh, and that's one of the ways I came across Kalindi, um, you know, learning martial arts, both as a practice of discipline and as a, you know, means of self-defense. Um, and so under that teaching, you know, he taught me a lot of, about martial arts, but most of all, he taught me that, you know, the biggest struggle or the biggest fight is within is, you know, is the, is the struggle to be a more better or perfect self to yourself and others to be a better extra expression. So, um, in that pursuit of martial arts, you know, I got to a certain level of development and then there was a, um, point which, uh, I guess there was an initiation that had to, uh, that took place, uh, utilizing the sacred mushroom. And so um, if anyone knows anything about Kalindi's approach or our, our approach, um, we try to come at it really traditionally. So we do what they call now high dose, uh, high dose work. And so um, I embarked on that, um, but not without having to first learn how to like just cultivate and, you know, just learn every aspect of it. So I, I approached it respectfully, of course, and then. From there, uh, just following and being an understudy of Kalindi, you know, through martial arts and with this understanding of uh, psychedelic or entheogenic science. Um, yeah, one day he just actually literally pushed me out on stage and <laughs> said, hey, it's time to start teaching. And so I began to teach. And, um, you know, unfortunately, as everyone know, when he passed, um, we were working on a lot together. He was working on a lot on his own. And so, um, of course that expanded you know some of the work i was doing because simply out of uh respect and honor of the projects we were working on um and so in this work of course we were already working with darren who was uh you know a, a student and uh acacia and others um and so we linked up you know just in the travels and it was just a beautiful thing and of course i met you which was a blessing and connecting to a larger what we call uh, mycological community so it's been a dope, dope adventure. Shout out Acacia Lewis. She was on my mind immediately when, when you started talking. I thought, I got a shout out Acacia and you did it for me. So a master teacher in her own right. So one of the areas of concern that I've heard from people, which you just touched on briefly, is this fact that mushrooms have become extremely popular in mainstream society arguably more so now than ever before. But in many ways, we lack this ritual framework or this ceremonial ceremony, this rite of passage that you just touched on as being extremely integral to your own work. As mushrooms get more and more popular and you have more people taking them, how do you see a legitimate way forward for including this respectful approach and more ceremonial container in a culture like the United States that doesn't necessarily value or have any frame of reference for these things? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great question. You know, um, you know, how do we balance that consumer or consumptive model, you know, with like some true reverence. And uh, part of that, I think, is just education. You know, I think um, because of I, li I liken it to, you know, um, I did it when I pres presented in Breaking Convention, like one of the examples I used was coffee. You know, like up until what the late 1980s or 90s, you know, most um, conventional Americans didn't know what real coffee was, per se. You know, through education, of course, they became a different understanding and respect. Um, and so 
you know, one of the goals I work toward is from the outset as this recognition or this reconnection with this uh, technologies come into play. Um, hopefully, like as hard as possible, push, you know, education and information around it just to um, just to ground people and create reverence. And then the second thing I think is like purposeful curating of culture. You know, and that's one of the things like I recognize you about with you, because, you know, as the sacred jester, you know, you could you you actually do a good job of like poking fun and keeping that balance between like the secular and sacred where, you know, of course, things people are going to have their financial pursuits, but um, making sure that it stays grounded um, comes in the form of creating those containers such as festivals, such as educational opportunities, such as conferences such as organizing, you know, um, larger communities and kind of providing models of like how to best enjoy it, how to get the most out of it. And um, it's interesting because what you'll find is like, I come across people who are come like, yeah, of course. Yeah, man. I, you know, I got shrooms, I do, do, you know, as they call it shrooms, I, you know, and, but they've never had like a really immersive experience. And so um, when I get a chance to interact and work with them and then they have a real very immersive experience in a proper set and setting with the proper information. It's a totally different understanding. So I think it's really about, you know, being a cultural worker and pr producing those containers and those vessels, which we can celebrate it and experience it, you know, in a good way, you know, but there's always going to be that, you know, that commercial aspect to it, you know? Uh, yeah. So that's the million dollar, or in this case, multi-billion dollar question is how to navigate this. And my take on it is that, the the burst bubble of psychedelic research in the 60s, this second wave, if you will, of psychedelics, that essentially was the government shutting down clinical research and putting the kibosh on psychedelic mainstreaming. But the difference between then and now is there was no home mushroom cultivation knowledge back in the 60s. If there was, it was very restricted. That's completely changed now, right? You've got tons of community frameworks, tons of online resources and education and for my money, that is the fundamental difference between the 1960s and today is that it's going to be impossible to put this genie back in the bottle when you have so many people who are advocating for education and and sharing their stories of how mushrooms have impacted their own lives in a very beneficial way. So, you know, these are the high stakes conversations. And to to ask about your involvement with the legislative process, I'd love to know, how do you go into that? When you're talking to policymakers, you're talking to the community, you're talking to government officials and first responders, what is that legislative process like for you to go out and educate people in Detroit and in Michigan and around the world, really, about mushrooms and their place in society? Oh, man, that's a, that's a great question, because it's it's interesting because I guess like, and I would say both of us as, you know, uh, people who respect this work and this, 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 this experience and this ability to like change who we are. And, um, we have, it's almost like I have to kind of make the uh, conversation very, very bland for lack of a better word. You know, you keep it on science, you keep it on biology. Um, but, there's a real desire in me to talk about the sacred, but then that, that helps me recognize like a point in which as a society, we have to mature because um, we realize that when we have these discussions and we start talking about the sacred, there's this knee jerk reaction and there's this inherent fear. So, you know, you have to 
kind of do baby food and say, hey, you know, it could help with depression, you know, which is very valid, you know, but we know there's many other benefits, um, intangible benefits, but can't speak on that. So we just have to keep it very chemical, <laughs> biochemical, uh, and, and really like let them know how safe it is. So it is, it's interesting and it's a balance because I think one of the things we have to do as well as cultural workers is understand that framework. So, um, it may not be the best idea to, you know, um, talk about some of these higher things because it, it'll, it'll scare them off, you know, and even how you present yourself, it's almost, you have to kind of square your circle. You know what I'm saying? Because their understanding of what it looks like to be someone in the realm of psychedelics is just totally out of whack. So you have to, um, it's a real balancing act. And sometimes I, you'll get a fatigue because you want to, you know, be part of that. You know, you want to, express yourself fully you want to be part of that sacred revival but you at the same time in those halls have to kind of like play that game and give them what will appease them you know but um what you'll find is it's a lot of a lot of a lot of interest in it um the biggest concern of course is safety and the biggest concern of course is commerce and so um and those are questions that are sticky that, that are not always comfortable. Um, of course, safety is big. It's, you know, something I'm big on, but when they come to commerce, that's their first question. So, um, that's when, you know, that's the sticky part that we work, we're working through as a, as a whole community now. Right. Um, because their whole approach to, well, what do we do about sales? What do we do about this and that? And uh, that's something we're all wrestling with. Absolutely. And I'm paying pretty close attention to it. I see a few routes forward, and I also appreciate that when policymakers are thinking about how to introduce or regulate or deregulate or whatever it is, they have population-level decisions to grapple with. And it's pretty easy for us to sit here personally and be like, yeah, my friends and I do it this way. But it becomes a little bit, quite a bit more complicated when you start thinking about the dynamics of 21st century Western society, hyper-technological, hyper-advanced, consumer-oriented. And these are really interesting questions about how to practically, how to pragmatically merge these worlds right now. So of course, there's the medical route, which gets the lion's share of the press and attention, which is psilocybin, as they call it, or mushrooms, will be introduced in a medicalized, clinicalized setting. But there's obviously a lot of other people who say, oh, that's not really how I want to do it. I want to empower a community framework. I want to do it in a more religious or spiritual capacity. And that's the ongoing discourse right now, which doesn't seem to have a clear answer, honestly. And so I just I find a, a great deal of interest thinking about these topics pragmatically and would love to hear about from you. Uh, first of all, I want to shout out Breaking Convention. It's one of the reasons I love Breaking Convention because they're platforming people like you and Kalindi. And I've been to so many of these conferences now where it's sterilized and you're only allowed to tow the party line, right? And to speak about microdosing and this and that. But it, it's really wonderful that there are still platforms where you can speak more in depth from a empowered personal perspective and share, share those, those stories and that knowledge. So with that being said, can you talk a little bit about your high dose work and some of the safeguards that you put in place to ensure that you're respecting that work and that you're prepared and you're you're ready to go explore these higher dimensions that we both know exists when you call the mushroom into play? Yeah, yeah. Um, my personal, you know, when I do high dose work, 
you know, I t first thing I try to tell people it's not a contest because, you know, um, like when Kalindi began speaking about it and then when I speak on it, it's not so much as a like dare or anything. It's just a like we all do trip reports, feedback, you know. Um, and so the, the first thing is to understand it's not something that anyone has to do. And it's definitely not um, uh, uh, something that's like uh, a novelty. Um, it's something any amount, any exploration of your higher consciousness is any level respectfully is like to be saluted. Um, and so I try to make sure that's understood. And then personally, for me, um, I go in very rarely at super at high, high doses. Um, and one of the things I do and when I work with individuals, um, I teach them first off, I make sure that they have their 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 sea legs, just like I had to make sure I had my sea legs. In other words, be familiar with the space, be familiar with your reactions in different scenarios and know how to respond to that on your own end. And then, um, of course, all those things physically, you know, rest, uh, making sure your, your brain chemistry is right. You know, your, your, your choline and all of your, you know, aminos are correct and all of these things. Um, your diet is right. Your mood is right. Your, your, your life set and setting is correct. In other words, there are things that are not impeding on you in terms of stress or duress and, um, before going into it, uh, understanding why. So what I say is like at a smaller dose, um, or nominal regular dose per se, um, that's, you know, doing major rearrangement of furniture at a, a higher dose. That's more like you, you're doing a major reconstruction. You're knocking walls down and things. So, um, understand it's going to be a very trying process. It's not going to always be quote unquote enjoyable. Um, it will present a lot of challenging, uh, insights in the self and things of that nature uh, and the people around you because it's it's more so not for personal use it's more so for use of a greater community it's more of a shamanistic approach for which a term i try not to tread on too often but for lack of a better term uh, that's the approach that um allows you to i guess what i say check in on your psychic village and to um help ensure that things outside of you are correct. <laughs> You're dealing with energies and um, influences uh, that uh, affect, help, hinder, or support things that are going on around you and people that are going on around you. So it's really a quest of, you know, understanding those subtleties, you know, those subtleties that are going on within you, those subtleties that are going on with the people around you and your greater community. And then, it's a deeper path of learning how to, you know, um, help affect things for the better, for lack of a better word. So you could sense a particular, like someone that you love going through something that you didn't realize. And you could just like we do in a waking world, send that energy to help affect the situation for the good. Or you can sense an impending uh, threat or something that, that, that is not necessarily good for, your collective and you can try to ward that away, you know, or try to do things to dissipate that. So, you know, it's traditional, uh, ancient, you know, spiritual, uh, shamanistic approaches in which you're caring for your psychic bubble, your psychic village and your inner self. And so there's a lot of things that go into it, like 
actually physically getting in shape. It's like getting into it before a major fight. You know, you have to be in shape um, to just keep you from having like bad reactions and being able to go through it in a way that um, you come out of it uh, healthy, for lack of a better word, and not um, scared away. You know, so it's a lot of aspects to it. You know, it's one of the things where I had to learn how to breathe. You know, where you learn that shamanastic breathing where you can find yourself getting caught in that breathing loop. And so it's all these little nuances that go into like uh, this mushroom work or the psychedelic work that come into play. You use all those tools and all those things you used on uh, moderate amounts and and go deep, you know, without going too far into it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, one of the challenges that we're facing collectively in the United States and Europe and these more westernized, industrialized society is a lack of lineage teachers in a lot of ways, a lack of elders. And of course, in many indigenous communities, you have these rituals, you have these worldviews and frameworks, but psychedelics coming into this more consumer oriented, capitalistic framework that we have, there's not too many, you know, people who, who know how to work with psychedelics or with plant teachers within this system that we currently have, because the system we have largely devalues a lot of the insights that many people get when they have a high dose experience or a mushroom experience. And that's been one of the challenges. This idea of integration is how do you integrate this extraordinary, phenomenal, beautiful experience into the humdrum grind culture that incentivizes us to chase the dollar and to buy and to, you know, purchase and, and individualizes and pathologizes health where it's, it's seen as a symptom of the individual rather than collective culture. And these are big questions we're grappling with, but I got into high dose work pretty early and pretty intentionally. And I had my sea legs and I always advocate for starting low and going slow. I had my first 1.7 gram dose 2006 it was enough where I could really feel the mushrooms, but I was very competent, confident, and I enjoyed and was attracted to the experience. I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to read more about it. I did those things. And this was pre-social media, pre-smartphone. So I had that advantage where I wasn't getting a lot of noise. I was getting mainly signal. I was focusing on reading Terrence McKenna and Mark Plotkin and reading about Maria Sabina, all these different people. And then over a period of eight months or so, leveled up the dose to get to seven grams and took a solo seven gram dose. And what really endeared me to the mushroom at that point was recognizing how intelligent the experience was. It wasn't a, it wasn't a drug. It wasn't a party drug. Sure. In the lower doses, I advocate for recreational use in lower doses, but like at these higher doses, I was blown away by how organized, intelligent, intuitive, so on and so forth. This experience was. And the real challenge though, is integrating that into this hyper-technological, fast-paced society, linear thinking, so on and so forth. So I just wanted to share that a little bit, but it's one of the primary challenges we have. Now, That's let's sweet. talk a little bit about your trip. Yeah, bro, thank you. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your trip to Ghana with Kalindi, because I heard you mention this at Breaking Convention, and I love a good story, and this is a great story. And I just want to hear about how did it come about and what was that experience like going to Ghana with Kalindi Iyi, master mushroom teacher. Yeah. Uh, oh, it was awesome. I'm, I'm glad to be able to share it. So, you know, as part of our um, school, you know, um, which is based in traditional African martial arts, <clears throat> like true traditional African martial arts, you know, where 
you know, uh, it's been for thousands of years. So we went to study uh, with traditional peoples of Ghana of a particular group. And, you know, just for the sake of the sacred, I won't reveal exactly who they were. Um, and so it was a beautiful thing. We went and trained with a host of these people uh, of this 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 particular group and they were very gracious and uh the first day there were some uh the priest the priest warrior priest of the, the the group the tribe the nation came through and they greeted us and they gave us their blessings and benediction you know and it was a blessing and so as they began to talk to Kalindi and we began to um discuss our our system our martial system our system including uh sacred plant teachers uh and fungal teachers um, they became intrigued. And our host, of course, didn't know anything about it. He was just simply a martial artist. So um, oddly enough, the next day they showed up. Now, this was a big deal because this is sort of like, you know, if you if you're in the church, that's sort of like your your parish priest coming by the house two days in a row. You know what I'm saying? And so and then they came a third day and then the fourth day. So now the host is like wondering what's up. But this was a point in which these priests started recognizing the parallels between our system and what was the traditional approach. So, um, yeah, it was an amazing thing. So then toward the end, this is a two-part trip. Toward the end of the first trip, um, we show up, and what was amazing was that they asked us to do our, our martial system, our dance. Um, we drank traditional beer that was brewed, you know, from the elders chewing the grain and spitting it, the whole nine. And um, they saw our dance, and at that point, uh, there was a situation in which they had to approach our host, who was a um, he was considered a war general of these people, a very you know a very prominent position, and they told him that he would have to share his throne or his seat with Kalindi, which was amazing. And so at this point, uh, the host, you know, I don't know how he felt, but had to feel some kind of way. Um, we shared the throne, and it was beautiful. And so at the end of this trip, and so there's a lot of, about this trip, and at the end of this trip, we were um, invited to go to the Na ceremony. And the Na ceremony represents when these people came from the Nile, Kemet, toward, or Egypt, West Africa. And so in this ceremony, uh, we began to do the dance, and then they allowed us to go to their shrine. And in their shrine, there was this white cloth that covered their shrine. This traditional shrine looks like a stool. And... Um, only a few people were allowed to go in. And when they lift the cloth up in the shrine was a mushroom. And they said, that's our highest medicine. And it was an amazing experience. And so later on, you know, we we blown back from that experience. You know, we went through the rest of the trip, left, came home, was blown back from the experience and everything. So we were invited back the next year. So we came back the next year um, and we were expecting to meet the same host, but unfortunately they had other situations. So intuitively, because I don't know, I guess he's a super saiyan, Kalindi told me, pack a tent. And so now I'm in Ghana with the tent and I'm happy to be there. And so luckily we packed the tent because our host did not show up. So now we're walking down the Gold Coast of Ghana, basically homeless with tents, which is no problem. So we find a, a lady who's willing to let her uh, back, uh, camp out in her backyard. And so perfect timing. The, the sun is going down. Suddenly the clouds cover over and then we get out our tents. As I'm working on the tents, the sky open up. Kalindi has his tent ready. The sky opens up, begins pouring rain. I look into my bag and I left my poles at the security place. 
at the last security spot. So as it's pouring down rain, the only thing I could do is wrap myself up in my tent. And so as I look over, Kalindi's in his tent. <laughs> he said, hey, man, you're my brother, but you can't get in here. <laughs> so the end because we had those little individual pump pup tents, you know, for mountains. And so afterwards, the next morning we go and we hear about the instalment of a new king of these particular people. And so we go and we find the instalment of the new king. And it's a beautiful sight, you know, traditional people and all their finery. And we see the traditional umbrella of Ghanaian society in which initiates the beginning of a new kingship. And so the the, the uh, king is coming. They're proceeding under the umbrella. They had their warriors. They had their guys. Everything's beautiful, you know, and we're observing it. And then far off in the distance, what do we see? We see another umbrella pop up. And what this means is there's somebody who's rivaling that particular kingship. So all hell breaks loose. I mean, there are people running all. I mean, there are people picking sides. And I mean, there's real conflict going on. So out of nowhere, we look up and here's our host, the guy that hosted us the first year. And so <laughs> Kalindi, realized, not realizing, oh, yeah, I was stewed as a uh, war chief. The guy looks at him and says, hey. This column of guys are yours, <laughs> you know. Basically, like let's get, let's go to battle. And so at that point, Kalindi looked at me and said, "Let's get the hell out of here." <laughs> so we got the hell out of there. <laughs> so, that was an amazing two-part adventure. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary story, and thank you for sharing it. I, I did not catch all that the first time I heard you talk about it. Yeah, that is wild. yeah. So. Of course, Darren LeBaron does a lot of work revolving around the untold story of psychedelics in Africa, mushrooms in Africa. And something I've heard him remark upon multiple times is how there's this global map that the anthropologist and mycologist Guzman created that shows mushroom, psilocybin mushroom distribution around the world. And they're all over the place. And then you have this giant continent in the middle with one mushroom on it or two mushrooms, right? And a big part of that is that there, there hasn't been this type of research, this kind of clinical Western anthropological research into mushrooms and mushroom culture, if you will, in Africa. And I've done some of my own research and recently saw a peer review paper talking about uh, a mushroom shaman in the Ivory Coast. And I hadn't seen any references to this anywhere else. Like if you Google mushroom lineage, mushroom traditions in Africa, there's not much out there. A lot of the knowledge is oral. A lot of the knowledge is sacred and maybe not shared so openly. And I've learned that this is the case in other places as well. I've heard about this in India. I've heard about this in the south of Mexico, that there's, of course, Maria Sabina, Huadla de Jimenez, Mazatec, people associate that with mushroom rituals. But in reality, it's very likely that they're all over the place and that they may still be practiced, but they're gatekept for a lot of reasons, right? They're, they're not shared openly and there's many valid reasons for that. So I'd be curious, is that something in your own research that you found? You just mentioned a little bit about the experience in Ghana, but have you connected with or learned about other indigenous cultures and groups without revealing any identifying information who have an ongoing lineage of mushroom use? Yeah, yeah, I, I, at least four, you know, and that's, you know, I, I've, I've been, like I say, on different, I guess, research trips to the continent, I guess about six times, and I met at least four. Um, and if it's not uh, 
the mushroom per se, you know, there's use of uh, the Cation Nilotica and they're acute. There's use of also a lot of sacred bulbs that we are yet to, they have various alkaloids and then that um, there are various nuts that they use. And so when we talk about like psychedelic use in Africa, it's sort of, um, it's sort of interwoven into the traditional culture because um, the interaction between spirit and the natural waking world is is um, is considered seamless in traditional African worldview. So when the anthropologists go looking for it, of course, it's not easy to find because it's just like when we when Kalindi first start looking up uh, martial arts, you say, where are martial arts? They're like, what the hell are martial arts? Because he's coming from, once again, our Western assumptive framework. They're like, what the hell are martial arts? And so until he figured out how to ask for fighting societies, then they say, oh, fighting society. You know, you go down the road and that's the fighting society. So a lot of societies have words for them that we just don't know about. And it's interwoven in their culture. It's interwoven in um, a lot of things. And if you go like to South Africa, you know, uh, I mean, you can go to a market and there are thousands of, you know, different alkaloid containing plants, DMT containing plants that do different things, you know, and part of the traditional African healing system was inherent part was the inebriation or the sacred inebriation, the healing of the spirit to heal the topical aspect. And so because it was so uh, interwoven into traditional African concepts, I think that's one of the factors that lend to it and because they do keep it very secret and that's one of the reasons i haven't mentioned where i came across it because i respect that and um in the process of colonialism that was one of the first targets and always is whether we talk about africa or europe or wherever else they attack that sacred uh the sacred traditions of a people so in traditional societies they learn to keep that very hush hush and to uh only speak it if they know that you know what you're talking about and only then will they reveal it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been hearing more and more from various people about personal experiences, about family members or connections. But as we saw with, you know, in the sixties with Maria Sabina sharing that knowledge and then the town getting overrun and her house ended up getting burned down actually. And they caused all kinds of controversies that are ongoing I mean, that don't I'm, often get spoken about. Right. Yeah. I was in Kenya yeah. and, you know, just not to interject, Sorry about that, but I just wanted to, I was in Kenya and they were, you know, it was Iboka, you know, in the local urban market. It was, it's no big deal over there. They're like, oh, Iboka? Yeah, it's there. Oh, you, oh, for, for dealing with addiction, that's what you're living with. You know, you have other ones that say, oh, you, you have a problem with insomnia? Well, take this particular psychedelic. You have a, you have a problem with your anger? You know, and it's, they have a whole plethora, a whole pharmacy. So it's amazing. Yeah. They, you know, now, yeah, you know, technology, yeah. it's advanced technology. You know, at the psychedelic science conference in Denver, I was at a panel called Indigenous Affinity Reciprocity for Native Communities, and it featured uh, a number of stakeholders, a number of tribal representatives from different indigenous tribes in Colorado and around the United States. And one of the gentlemen on stage was an older gentleman who was telling the audience, he had never heard the word psychedelic. He had never used the word psychedelic and that peyote and the, these medicines to them are not psychedelics. There's something that are, as you mentioned, interwoven into the cosmology, into the cultural framework where he comes from. And this idea of psychedelic, even the word is quite loaded. Like apparently it means a bunch of different things to a bunch of different people, right? Like you, had, if you had asked me a few years ago, 
I wouldn't have considered something like MDMA to be a psychedelic. But now MDMA, ketamine, et cetera, are being marketed at the vanguard of the psychedelic renaissance. And to me, there's a clear difference between MDMA or a high dose mushroom experience. So I think that's one of the the paths that we have to pursue as a a movement, if you will, or as whatever your role in this psychedelic mainstreaming or mainstreaming mainstreaming of plant medicines, et cetera, is to get better language to describe yes. these things and to right. be more nuanced with it. Right. I think that the push for having better labels or no labels and, exactly. and, and understanding the frameworks that these substances are used within and why they're used in the first place. Now, one other thing I think is very important. I'd love for you to dive into is diet. You mentioned it earlier. This is an integral part of a lot of plant medicine, a lot of entheogenic traditions, a lot of spiritual traditions. And scientific traditions is the diet, is better nutrition, making sure that you're properly hydrated and you're sufficiently, uh, your caloric intake is sufficient, et cetera. What does your diet look like and, and how do you work with diet in relationship to your your mushroom experiences? Okay, yeah. Um, well, I, you know, my diet is, you know, is, is relatively standard. I'm not a super vegan or anything. But I am, you know, heavy vegetarian, you know, heavy vegetable. I like to enjoy um, protein, of course, fish and chicken. Um, I do not eat excessively. You know, um, there are days in which I do intermittent fasting, of course, um, which involves, you know, low caloric restriction. Um, And that's important. So going delving delving in the diet or diet, as as called in in Southern American traditions, it helps because one, we have to understand that our 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 thinking or our gut or our brain um, exists in our stomach as well, and so um, just to like cut directly to the use of you know sacred technologies, um, <clears throat> this is where the processing of you know the DMT and all of these uh, other substances take place, and this is where the information is processed. Um, I know we we are always taught to orient this as a brain process and what goes on and now, you know, science looks at the brain, but it's the enteric nervous system which um, picks up, digests and sends these uh, signals to the brain for it. And so understanding your diet, and that's why the root word of diety is diet, you know, and that's why most major religious or spiritual things prescribe a particular approach to that. Because your diet literally affects your mentality, your mindset, your ability to um, react or, or or absorb information from your environment and your ability to produce those chemicals needed to have that bridge. So it's really about also having those chemicals, that brain chemistry, that body chemistry, that spiritual chemistry in place to tap into those realms. So diet is extremely important uh, not to go too far because, you know, we can go for days, but. Um, you you made an important point too, speaking about merging, you know, this knowledge with this modern world. And one of the things uh, I see metaphorically is happening is if we look at the mushroom and what it does in nature, nature, uh, mushroom is a decomposer. And so in a sense that is an emergence, there's also going to be a major decomposure of these traditional structures. And that's, I think the reconciliation is going to come from what happens after that, you know, and I think iterations such as uh, uh, which is you know such as big blockchain I'm not going to say Bitcoin but blockchain technology solar technology 3d printing these disruptive technologies 
a lot of them being birthed out of the psychedelic experience speaks toward the tendency for things like the sacred mushrooms to break down old structures and our opportunity as workers to create new ones. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a great future, but yeah, diet is super important, you know, in that regard. <laughs> yeah, I've heard Kalindi talk about some really interesting overlaps between things like high dose mushroom experiences and perfect AI or 3D printing, as he's mentioned, and these advanced technologies. And that's one of the things, one of the experiences that has endeared me to high dose mushroom work, which also I've learned not to speak about so much in specifics, but having had a number of experiences that essentially were divinatory in nature, where something was shown to me that was very specific and clear, and then it happened that way. And it was far too specific to be a happenstance. And and as another example, like hearing music, fully formed music, and, and thinking, what is going on right now? Like this is a song or a composition that doesn't exist yet, but I'm hearing it clearly right now with various melody lines and wanting to learn more about what's going on there and that process of inquiry to, to connecting with whatever you want to call it, but something that we currently lack the, the conscious ability to understand. It, it defies a lot of our logical framing of the world when you have these types of experiences. And I just think it's really interesting. And it's something that involves a trust process where I had to make this decision that I trust this substance, this mushroom that I'm working with right now, or that, that I am working, it's probably not the right word, but that I'm uh, collaborating with right now, that there's, there's something really, really profound that is, is showing itself or revealing itself slowly here. And I don't currently have the mental modeling to make sense of it. And I think that's, that's where I wanna go with this next bit is one of the big challenges we have globally right now as a, as a civilization, as a global society, is we kind of lack a coherent narrative for who we are, I think, in the sense that even two generations ago, we weren't as connected as we are now. Technology didn't exist to the point it exists now. So you had all these different competing narratives, and we're still seeing that play out in geopolitics. We're seeing, you know, this religion versus this religion, this people versus this people, this story versus this story. And I think the newer generations, Gen Z, et cetera, were born into this era of globalization that did not exist 30, 40, 50 years ago. My grandfather was born in the town in Texas with no cars and no electricity. And here we are in 2023, and I'm talking to you about, you know, going to Ghana and your work with my, like, it's a completely different world. So that's one of the challenges I think that we're facing is about like finding a coherent narrative that that works for a lot of different people as opposed to the, the fighting societies and the different you know the yeah, different yeah. kingships contesting each other yeah, so right. do you have anything to speak on that issue about like where we go from here yeah uh i do i think you know in one of the more profound uh teachings that i was taught by you know an elder in africa um was understanding our concept of timeline because often we're presented with a progressive linear concept of time um and one of the things he gave me to wrestle which is interesting because now quantum physics is starting to entertain the idea <clears throat> is the idea that the future informs the past and i know and that's that's kind of hard to tangle with but the, if you can imagine that there is a future potential that is pulling us through the present 
and and part of um, the work of part of what happens when you tap into these realms is you get a glimpse of what is, what could be and where we're headed. But part of our challenge is getting into alignment for that and not necessarily bouncing off the side of the walls, per se. I, don't, I know it's kind of an odd metaphor, but that's one of the things that um, helps me do. And, that, and that's a really important concept that I've had to digest over time is understanding our concern. The future informs the past. In other words, in quantum physics, as they explain, there are particles on the other side of the black hole and they're. Um, because of that, that, that quantum connection they have spooky action as a distance, their flipping influences the flipping on the other side in the present tense. And so understanding that time is fluid helps to realize that, um, part of where we're headed is, you know, a greater singularity is uh, a greater expression of what it means to be human. Now, um, what that looks like, um, I think in a lot of terms have been defined. I know it's weird, but if we look at, for instance, the watches, the modern watches of today, that was seated in, in the past. We were looking at the Jetsons. We were seeing TVs that talk to us and watches that talk to us and flying cars, microwaves. <laughs> you know, we were looking at this, which, which we were being pulled to from the future. And so understanding that we are headed toward a better future, you know, that's one of the things that helps reconcile the spirit. Um, that it will be a bumpy road, but we ultimately do have control over how we get there, whether it's going to be a bumpy road or a smooth transition. And so those great luminaries of history, as we see, they tend to be the ones that show us like this is a better way we can align for the future we're headed to. Or we can keep bumping our heads the hard way, you know, so the, the, the leaders of the past told us of importance of unity, of, of concerning ourselves with the human, of equity and justice. And why did they say that 80 years ago? Did they predict that the population would quadruple? Maybe so. But the importance of that is even more important now than ever. You know, so um, understanding that we're headed toward a future, that we're being pulled to the future in my personal approach and trying to better align with that future so that it's a smooth approach. And I'm not bumping my head trying to learn lessons for who I am becoming and who we can become, you know, so. A little philosophical. Beautifully stated. <laughs> Beautifully stated. Let's get philosophical with it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I got to get your take on microdosing. Uh, I will tell you that as a psychonaut of 17, 18 years, I'd never heard the term microdosing for the first 15 years of those. Yeah, right. I've never right. met anyone who microdosed. I've never heard of an indigenous culture who regularly microdosed. It's possible there are some people who took small doses here and there, but as a protocol, to get shit done. I don't think there's any substantive evidence anywhere that anybody was microdosing mushrooms or psychedelics. It doesn't mean I'm not open to the possibility, but I got to get your take on it. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, is this something that Kalindi ever talked about? No, I mean, it's something that, you know, he would chuckle at, you know, and not to knock it because, you know, it, it, it seems to have helped people and it, you know, if it helps, it's great. However, no, there's no evidence of that. Um, I think, one of the ideas is because through the medicalization model, you know, um, people are looking for a cure. But in traditional societies, uh, youth were introduced to these things so early on. And this is, once again, my orientation. And as I was told that these ideas weren't of having, I guess, um, these uh, addiction issues and such and depression cycles weren't 
as prevalent in these traditional societies because they were inoculated early on with having these divine experiences and understanding they were connected to a greater whole. So it never was a medicine to them. And so to us, of course, everything is a medicine trying to heal our sick soul, uh, collective soul. And it's just interesting. Uh, but of course, it's another way to, you know, um, and that's the one thing I'm concerned about the commercialization model is what we, I think you some, I think I saw someone or you referenced the idea of fairy dusting everything, you know, just sprinkling just a little bit and saying it has these amazing properties, but not enough to really change and change the course of where we headed. So, um, yeah, that's, I think it's that approach, it's that palliative approach, I believe in going in and, and really getting the work done. Um, but I'm not knocking its ability to help leading up to that process. So I know people who who are afraid to go in and used it to get the courage to go in on a higher level, which is cool. But I'm not, you know, the, the biggest cheerleader on it. There are people I work with that utilize it. And I, and I you know, if they ask me, I'll provide it. But I'm a fan of going in and and, and, and doing the really immersive work and, and getting it done personally. So, yeah. Um, you and me both, Moodoo. Yeah. So you touched on something I'd love to dive into right now, which is about younger people taking entheogens, younger people in traditional societies having these spiritual experiences and connecting with these advanced technologies. And I've been fortunate to spend some time with the Mazatec indigenous people and with Maria Sabina's family herself going all the way back to 2010 which is when I really cut my teeth on deeper ceremonial mushroom work. And one of the stories I heard is that a number of the people in that family and in that village had their first mushroom experiences at around seven or eight years old, even as young as five years old. And these were not microdoses. These were properly conducted veladas or rituals. And that was safe and it is safe for them. Of course, we live in drastically different society here in the United States as people there did in a lot of ways. And it is a hot button issue, but there's more and more people researching this, sharing this, that in these indigenous societies, and it's not just one or two, it's a lot of them, that having this, this journey work at an early age is something that can inoculate you against uh, some of these more sinister, problems that might arise later. And why I heard specifically why it's given to kids is because children's minds are not clouded with a lot of the challenges and 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 negativity and, and things of, of adulthood. For example, you don't have to think about your your spousal relationship or you don't have to think about your your work or whatever. Like you are unadulterated and in that way it's a very pure and direct conduit for this experience to take root in you. So in your experience and your learning do you have anything to speak on in regards to indigenous societies providing entheogens and mushrooms to to younger folks? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it it was a in my experience interaction, it's, it's something that um, because we tend to uh, uh, put you know put uh, adulting and maturation in formaldehyde, and we try to stretch it out to with thirty, but my, a lot of societies. Um, like giraffes, their children are born directly into the society and functioning. And so it's a way for them to have that connection with the spirit that never dies. As we know, in, in modern society, that tends to fade about 13 when we start to get cynical or whatnot. But in traditional societies, very much kept alive. And that's in place of the traditional religious structures where they have to rely on a central lead figure. It's, it's a communal effort. It's a communal understanding of the divine. So you don't need someone to ask 
should I kill someone? Or, you know, it's pretty understood collectively because everyone shares in a divine experience. So, yeah, it's it's a big deal. Just like, you know, there's an indigenous cultures of uh, West Europe that even use uh, grape juice, fermented grape juice called wine <laughs> for their youth. Right. But <laughs> but it's interesting. No, that's just a remnant of that traditional aspect, though. You know, in France, you know, the traditional wine, it, it harkens back to that. Um you know, uh, inebriation is something that is more universal than we think, and it's more ubiquitous than we think throughout nature, and it's it's not as a uh, in the proper context as taboo or rare as we are led to think. You hit the nail on the head there in regards to alcohol, and I think there's a parallel with the way the United States processes inebriants between alcohol and mushrooms and other things. In that, in France, if you're 12 years old. And my French friends grow up having a glass of wine with the parents at the family dinner. They tend not to become binge drinkers or alcoholics. And the opposite is the case in the United States is because of prohibition, because of sort of puritanical values for a lot of people. You don't drink, you don't drink, you don't drink. And then boom, you go to college or boom, you go out and live on your own. And we have an issue with binge drinking. We have an issue with addiction. And although... There's not a lot of evidence or any evidence that there's chemical dependencies that are formed when you take psychedelics or mushrooms or whatever. It's that same mentality of if you have unregulated use and you just say, hey, I've been told my whole life that this stuff's bad for me or I can't have it. And then now I have an experience and it's awesome and I love it. I want more of this. And that just becomes kind of a, a tricky thing to navigate in that the, the models of consumption for our culture validate extended and repeated use of something and heavy use this idea that more is better that i should overconsume. like i should go to the hometown buffet and i should eat meatloaf and mashed potatoes and roast chicken like i think that's great every now and then for a feast but like when we normalize it and i think maybe that's where microdosing comes in or the productizing of mushrooms comes in when you attach that dollar value to it and it's it's yeah so i just be curious yeah if you have anything to speak on in that matter about like how people specifically in the United States, when we start to accept that mushrooms can be transformative and profound, how can we uh, value and respect them at scale? I think that's the big yeah, challenge right. is these population level decisions. Is it even possible? Well, I, I mean, I, there's a part of me to think the mushroom and me and you have this experience. The mushroom has a very good way of scaring the shit out of someone who's... <laughs> And if you're not serious, you're not coming back. So that's one factor. I call that attrition factor. I think there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be playing with it and the mushroom is going to shake the shit out of them, need it be in a good way, but it's going to cause them to change their lives, but never go back, which is okay. But then, um, then there's those two extremes where you're going to fairy dust thing and then they're going to start producing like the, you know, 50% DMT mushroom, da -da -da, super strain like cannabis, uh, so that that's that's one of the things we're gonna have to look out for. But I think the mushroom has a beautiful way of like, if you're not about like the work, um, it has a way. You know, we've all been grabbed one night, and it's been like, uh oh, you know, and it's sat us down and 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 given us that look. So I anticipate that for a lot of people, and I think it's gonna mature society. I think in the early stages it will be a novelty, but I've gotten a call from a lot of people who've like, hey man. I was at the party and I was like, I told you not to take it at the party, but I did it anyway. And 
I, I didn't want to be at the party. I just sat there and thought about my life. And I'm like, yeah, I, I told you, you know, and, and it's this whole change happened. So this guy goes in trying to like fucking party and just bullshit with it. And it ends up changing his life. You know, three months later, he's married with the carrier man or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it has a way of like forcing that maturity. And I think it's not going to be like a lot of these other consumables where you could just take it and be the same. I mean, I, I haven't been the same. Have you been the same? I don't know anybody that's the same. So um, I have faith and trust that this medical technology is just that. This sacred, I don't want to say medical, this, medis, this sacred fungus technology is just that. And it will change people whether they like it or not, you know, <laughs> in a good way. So that's why we have to give them a huge impact in my life and continues to reveal itself. And something I've intuited or come to understand is that we we like our immediate gratification in the United States. I was raised with this sense of I need to understand now. I need to know. I need to be in charge here. And my experiences with mushrooms have allowed me to detach from that a little bit and maybe not be as much of a control freak to to try to invest and cultivate the things that I can control, but also to recognize there's a lot I can't control. There's a lot I don't understand. And I think I would like to see our society kind of warm up to that idea because I think a lot of the problems that arise right now are just people who are know-it-alls, people who know better than the other person. I know better than you. I, I know more than you. And I don't really think that's the case. I think that there's a, a humility that we need to ingratiate into ourselves and into society at large. And you look at technology and a lot of the people wielding this technology, and there's an advanced degree of hubris that's in place. This idea that we know better than nature. We know better than this. We're going to sterilize and clinicalize and control this. And or I'm taking one of the, the mushroom. most beautiful less. Yeah. I mean, it's actually so beautiful to kind of relinquish a little bit of control and to say like, I don't, I don't have to control this. Like I can try to control myself and try to apply lessons, but you know, eventually I'll understand like some lessons that you get from, from mushroom use or, or entheogenic use, they might not become clear to you until long after the use, right? This idea that like, I have to immediately understand everything that just happened. Like there's deep parts of the brain that no matter how advanced science and technology is, we don't know shit about what happens after you die about, you know, the, these advanced realms. Like it's just kind of humbling to be like, we really don't know. We might have some models for inquiring who might be getting closer, but like we don't know the first thing about a lot of these more intricate and advanced dynamics at play around us in the, in the universe, right? We just have some good theories or decent theories at best. So we're getting towards the end of the, the line of questioning or the flow here, but I do want to open up the floor to you to share any of the ongoing, ongoing projects you have and any of the messages you have for people listening right now. Yeah, I just uh thanks again. I appreciate your work. I appreciate the platform. Um you know, I'm busy here uh in Detroit we're building a movement um and we're we're creating space for these sacred group experiences and things of that nature. Um for those people that are interested in learning how to do this or approach to it in a responsible way. Um I, we are you go to bluesagehealth.com we're doing the, if that's okay, we're doing a uh, psychedelic therapy training. And I hate to put it in clinical terms because it's much more than that, but for sake of digestion, that's what it's psychedelic therapy training, Blue Sage. Um, also, just, you know, check me out. I'm out here. If, uh, you know, anything, uh, if you're trying to organize your city, if 
you're interested in trying to get some access accessibility and you want to organize, please contact, you know, Decrim Nature National or contact me at Mudubaki on Instagram. Um, you know, keep your ear out for Detroit Psychedelic Society. We'll be doing a lot of events. Um, hope to have you out, you know, have Mike Preneur, you know, do their thing. Come on out. Um, if not as a platform, you yourself personally, Dennis. Um, yeah, and just, you know, keep the faith for those people that are out there that are rooted in this work. Um, let's let's change the world. Let's not get distracted by the chads out here that are, you know, simply about the paper. Understand that there's a win-win out here in which we can create a sustainable future where we can create our platforms and, and sustain our lifestyle and at the same time do great work. Um, and yeah, let's spread the word, spread the spores, let's connect and uh, learn a better example of what humanity should be. So yeah. Mudu Baki in the house. Thanks for joining us. I'm Michael Preneur. Thanks to all of you listening out there. We have a lot of love for you and tap in with us and let us know you heard this episode. So you're welcome back anytime, my friend, and I'll be seeing you in Detroit shortly. All right. All right. Take care. Peace. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.